if Liz was up and dressed, I'd send her to the mailbox, and then I could squee in the middle of the show. My shirt came! My shirt came! <laughs> <laughs> Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. This episode is sponsored by Code Climate. Code Climate automated code reviews ensure that your projects stay on track. Fix and find quality and security issues in your Ruby code sooner. Try it free at rubyrogues.com slash codeclimate. This episode is sponsored by SendGrid, the leader in transactional email and email deliverability. SendGrid helps eliminate the cost and complexity of owning and maintaining your own email infrastructure by handling ISP monitoring, DKIM, SPF, feedback loops, white labeling, link customization, and more. If you'd rather focus on your business than on scaling your email infrastructure, then visit www.sendgrid.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 139 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Avdi Grimm. Hello. James Edward Gray. I'm Batman. David Brady. Wait, I thought I was Batman. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. We also have two special guests this week, uh, Sean Cribs. Howdy. And Bryce Curley. Good afternoon. Before we get started, I'm I'm hearing that Dave has an announcement he'd like to make, so I'm going to let him go, and then we'll have you guys introduce yourselves. Thanks, Chuck. Uh, so, we always do introductions, and then Chuck tells us what course he's working on, and I, I just, I wanted to do that today. Uh, I'm putting together an emergency job replacement guide. Basically, if you are looking for work and want to know all the dirty tricks that I have learned, not the dirty tricks, but the really clever tricks that I've learned over the years to get that next job fast... Uh, how to get your resume not to the top of the pile, but make your resume destroy the pile so that it's, it is the pile. I've got exactly the product that you are, uh, looking for. And you can, uh, watch me write this ebook and, uh, sign up to get an early copy of it at, uh, jobreplacementguide.com. So come over there and sign up and let me know how interested you are and, uh, how, <laughs> and I hope you don't need it right now. Uh, but if you do, Come let me know, and uh, I'll get cracking and get that out to you. I'm holding out for the sequel, Brain Replacement Guide. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That sounds like the plot to a really bad piece of downloadable content for yeah. Fallout to Vegas. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's awesome, though. Okay, cool. Sounds cool. like the book. Yeah. Chuck, you forgot to let our guests introduce themselves in your excitement to get the Oh, game. yeah. Yeah, I said that I would let Dave talk, and then I would inter- yeah. let them introduce themselves. So, uh, Sean, yeah, so why, why well, don't you introduce yourself? This this was important because uh, Bryce is probably looking for a job. So, I wait <laughs> for me. I'll stop. Sorry, he, he will be after he's on this show. <laughs> I was already forecasting having to talk about a uh, career limiting move, but. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, Sean. Why don't you introduce yourself? Hi. Well, yeah. What what should I say? Uh, I've been uh, doing uh, Ruby since about 2006, so it's it's pretty exciting to finally be on this podcast with all you fun guys. And uh, you may have known me from some of my previous uh, regrettable exploits, including uh, Radiant CMS and and the library Ripple, which I started four years ago. So I've done. Uh, Number of Rails projects too that were fun, um, but uh, nowadays I'm do- mostly doing Erlang and Python and JavaScript. 
So uh, sort of, uh, I'll have a, a, a bit longer view on, <laughs> or uh, Ruby's a little bit in my past, uh, although I still do review Bryce's pull requests, so that'll be fun. We, we still love you. Come oh, back. well, I still love Ruby, you know? Come um, back. <laughs> I'm trying to make him not love Ruby with my pull requests, but we'll see how that goes. <laughs> you gotta try harder, Bryce. <laughs> he, he went to Erlang because Ruby doesn't scale, right? That's right. All right, Bryce, how about you? So I've been doing Ruby since about 2005, and I've been working at Basho for about two and a half years. Uh, for the last several months, I've been working on the React Ruby client gem. Aha! Uh-huh. Very cool. So, so React is just a fancy version of MongoDB, right? <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, um, no. except non-crashy. <laughs> well, uh, I, I hate to break it to you, all software crashes. Uh, it's just what does it do when it crashes, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, that's true. So, Mongo eats your data, and React maybe. I don't know. Sorry, let, yeah. sorry this, let's, just, let's, just, let's just pull back from the, the everybody hates Mongo thread. This is, let's, let's do a show about we love React. Let's, let's keep it positive, keep it light. <laughs> so, I, I mean, we, we, could, we could talk about, you know, compare and contrast. But if we want to go from, from first principles, React is designed to be distributed from the beginning versus adding a sharding or, or you know, redistribution layer on top. So... The flip side of that is, you know, it tends to be hard to run React uh, on a single server because you get three copies of all your data. <laughs> so we usually recommend people go, like, you know, minimum five machines. But uh, basically what that means is, like, the reason you're picking React is you know you have a big data set or you know you need resiliency or you know that you're going to need to, in the case of our, you know, our product, our enterprise version, you need to replicate across multiple data centers for locality's sake or for disaster recovery. So th- those are the reasons you'd pick React. I don't have the pitch for Mongo, so I- I'm sorry I can't give that um, in contrast. But uh, generally, Mongo seems to be a an easier uh, switch if you're already using a relational database. But the reasons you'd pick it are totally different than the reasons you'd pick React. So let's talk about that a little bit. Can you give us just the... 10,000-foot view, what's the problem domain where React just cleans up? Yeah, so uh, React does really well in big, high-volume uh, applications. So you're doing lot, especially lots of writes. Um, you know, relational databases are really good at making reads fast. But uh, if you're just pumping a ton of data into your system, they can be problematic under certain circumstances. So uh, what React gives you is the ability to add more machines to get more capacity, but you're also not, you know, in- increasing latency as you add machines. You're actually probably keeping it constant or decreasing. So, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, run benchmarks, usually micro benchmarks, and like, oh, I get, you know, X number of queries per second or whatever. But you know, a, a pretty typically overlooked thing in those benchmarks is what is the distribution of each of those requests? Not just how many can you pump through, but how, how long does each one take? And, you know, what is the shape of the curve of uh, those latencies? And what we find with uh, a lot of the, the big applications is it's not just that they've got a ton of data coming through. It's also that, you know, they, they need every single user to have a good experience. And if they, they get, you know, a bad experience for one user, that may mean a lost sale 
or you know they you know somebody gets really mad and writes a bad review you know that sorts of things so uh, it, it's really for the those high volume applications that that also need low latency and, and high availability so the origin of react really comes from amazon's dynamo paper uh, we've since diverged from that of course but their problem was shopping carts and you know a lot of people i know by now since the the NoSQL thing started really in 2009, a lot of people have read the Dynamo paper already, but the brief overview of it is they needed a system that made their uh, shopping carts highly available to every single customer with a consistently low latency. And they were willing to sacrifice some consistency in order to get that. And so that's that's where React comes from, at least philosophically. So since you're kind of talking about it a lot, I guess what we're discussing here is the cap theorem, right, which says that uh, of the three things, consistency, availability, and uh, is it tolerance? Is that the other one? Um, partition tolerance, yeah. Partition tolerance. We can only have two, right? Isn't that the, the way it works? <laughs> well, I think that only have two is a bit misleading. What it says more is that there's, it's impossible to have all of them. It is possible to have one of them and not the other two. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, but gener- more generally, the thing is, uh, and there's this great post by Coda Hale, um, who should be pretty well known among Rubius um, for his his work uh, or, you know, early on the Rails community as well. But uh, it's called "You Can't Sacrifice Partition Tolerance," and essentially what it says is that you know you can you can have a distributed system because we're all you know are we're built, all building distributed systems nowadays, whether we like it or not. But when you have uh, a network failure, which happens very frequently, a lot more frequently than people like to admit, you have to choose. So it's it's not about pick two, it's when you have a partition, are you preferring to be consistent, which means that you might have to reject requests? Um, or are you preferring to be available, which means that you might have inconsistency uh, when the partition heals? So the typical choice there is, you know, one or the other, or in this circumstance, this, or in that circumstance, that. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So I want to I want to just uh, back up a little bit. I know that uh, some people are familiar with React, but many people aren't. So I just want to talk about the basic ideas behind React in the sense that it's a key value store, so you can store JSON or whatever in there, right? It's it's not a document database and it's not a columnar database. It's it's just a key value store that scales. Yep, that scales. Um, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's got a picture of a ring. Yes. <laughs> Which is actually really important. We love that picture really a bit too much, actually. <laughs> it's, yeah, actually, that, that picture of the ring is actually really important. Um, I, I'm, I'm actually kind of bringing it up as kind of a soft pitch to you guys to talk about the ring and kind of an answer to Chuck's question of, like, what is React? I mean, the, the, the ring is actually the dynamo pattern. Is that correct? Yeah, so everybody knows, most people probably who listen to this podcast use Git, right? So you know those those shaws that you get every time you make a commit? That's like a hash of the commit you made, right? So what uh, React does is it takes that basically same SHA hash and says for every key we're going to store, uh, for the value for that, that key, the, the hash of that key says this is the logical location where that key is stored. And if you think of that as, you know, uh, you know 160-bit integer, that you know tops out at two to the one hundred sixty minus one, and then wraps around to zero. Then you have a ring. So that gives you uh, a way to determine 
if you split that ring up into fixed size partitions like we do, where to put that key um, when you store it? I'll stop for questions and then maybe go on. I don't want to steal the whole time here. Got in, you, the, in the database? But so we're, we're not talking about just uh, one, one file or directory on disk. We're talking about multiple machines, you know, in your data center or, or in AWS that are, are storing your data. So it's like, which machines does this data go on? So what React will do is it'll split this, what we call consistent hash ring or consistent hashing space up into fixed size buckets. We call them partitions. And then, you know, you hash the key, and that points to a range which is owned by one of those partitions. And then you pick the next two. Let's say if you're using the default replication factor three, you pick the next two around the ring, and that says where the other two replicas go. Now, you can take those partitions and map them to individual machines uh, in the cluster. And then that tells you, okay, when I write this thing, I know that the, the hash of the key is this, so it corresponds to these three th partitions. Look up which partitions or which machines those partitions are mapped to, and then you can send those writes out to those machines or reads, for that matter. Gotcha. So that's so, how you get the big fault tolerances because the data is replicated several times across the partitions. Right, and you, you can choose reduced or increased availability based on you know how many how many of these do I want to wait for. So, you know, you can say, I, I want to wait to make sure that it's written to at least two before I say, yeah, this, this write succeeded. Because, you know, if distributed systems, they fail all the time. You have to make a trade-off of, you know, how, how much assurance do I, do I need that this was written? Or, you know, I'm just going to fire and forget. So those are the sorts of things that you can decide at an application level, but also, you know, have, have effects on, on uh, the consistency of, of your data. So uh, we talked about how React is, is at its heart, a key value store, but it's kind of grown beyond that too, right? I mean, don't links kind of provide an almost graph database-like feature? I don't want to say it is, but, and then uh, I've been looking at the 2.0 release and, and where we're going with that, and you're getting some interesting new data types there too. Want to talk about that? So I can talk a lot about the uh, React 2.0 data types. Uh, I've actually been working on the, the support for those in the Ruby client for the last several months because they're a uh, complicated and interesting feature that I want to represent correctly and completely, I guess, in Ruby. Uh, so sort of the high-level view, and this is... I gave a talk about this at uh, Scottish Ruby Conference Fringe uh, a couple years ago. But the high-level view is that the uh, React data types are built on convergent replicated data types, or CRDTs. And what these provide are sets, counters, and some other data structures that you can write to in multiple places, see something consistent from every participant in the party, and then merge them independently at different data centers, say, and still get a accurate representation of what the structure should be based on what you can see. And there's sort of a lot of hand-waving in there because this sort of comes down to like the light cones between different data centers or different users interacting with the system and what actually is correct and if correctness is actually a thing that you give up doing distributed systems. Yeah, so the the short version of that is, yes, counters, sets, and maps containing the above other maps 
booleans and strings, uh, they're coming soon in React 2. You said something that really interests me, and let me know if this is derailing the topic or if it's a, a great logical place to go next. But you just said, if correctness is something you're willing to give up, and hopefully every formally trained computer scientist just had an involuntary full-body shudder uh, when you said that. Because there's an old joke in computer science, right? If, if, if my program doesn't actually have to be correct, then I can write it in zero bytes and it will take up zero time. Can you I write, talk? I write that program a lot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Can you talk a little bit about what a system would look like that does not depend on the data being correct or has loose? Is I, I'm assuming it's like fault tolerant of data consistency, but like I, I can't even get my head around what a system would look like that had three different copies of my customer's credit card number. Um, <laughs> sure you can. You're just not thinking about it the right way. Well, yeah. it's I can think about it, but I just I automatically remember all the beatings I got in school. And, um, so it's like uh, just before I did this call, I was working on um, a feature in an app uh, that's autocomplete, and um, so you know somebody types starts typing something, and then we give them the possible choices matching out of our data in our database, and we're using Elasticsearch for something like that. And then uh, Elasticsearch has this feature where um, you can uh, have it learn, help it learn by what they choose. So then you record what they choose, you know, in some way. And, then, and so depending on the amount of traffic it is, you basically need to make a, a check mark in the database or of some that kind every time they make a choice, right? So uh, they type these three characters, and then they chose this. So these three characters to this, check, you know? And then uh, when you're ranking things, you can basically add up all the check marks and, and see which one people typically choose, and it makes your autocomplete better, right? So if you have a really simple system and, and don't have a lot of traffic or whatever, you might just store those as a record in the database, and then you can do a count, you know, grouping by the uh, the type of item or the query or whatever, and and get the count. But if you if you have a ton of traffic, then storing that in a relational database is gonna suck, right? So right. this is a, a great example of data that's nice to have because it will make the autocomplete better. But does it have to be a hundred percent correct? No, not really. Most people. Okay throw it in a data store for a period of time and then they re-index like once a day or something like that to bring to make the autocomplete smarter. And if you do have a big enough volume like we do in our case where it's not a good idea to shove this in a uh, relational database, then you, you put it somewhere else. Like, uh, you know, uh, Redis maybe is a good choice because it's pretty quick, you know, or whatever. But then... Uh, you know, if your Redis instance goes down, then you're going to lose all those check marks, right? Mm -hmm. But that's not a super big deal. It just means your autocorrect won't be as smart as it was yesterday, right. and right. it'll build back up, right? I, I want to zero in on something you just said um, and clarify a little bit, because so when you say it's not a good idea to, st to store that in your relational database, do you mean because of the write volume is going to hurt other writes, do you mean because of just the space that it's going to take up? What specifically do you mean by that? Look, Abdi, I was trying to do a lot of hand-waving there. Don't give me the <laughs> <laughs> So, 
<laughs> let me let let me specify like the background that that comes from. You know, after years of doing various projects that involved integrating different systems, my stress level goes up anytime somebody talks about using, like, adding another system to integrate with. Anytime you talk about adding another system to integrate with, my stress level goes up. So, so okay, that, like, so that's a great point. Like, <laughs> I just mentioned Elasticsearch and Redis in the same conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and Avdi, I think that's a great point because part of the motivation for beyond just like solving our, our customers' pain, right, um, and our open source users' pain, it, for for adding these data structures that Bryce mentioned, it is is that uh, that means there's fewer systems. It, if they choose React, there's fewer other systems that they have to add in. And I, I think that you know back back to what they mean and what they're about. I, I don't think that Bryce was suggesting that they would be incorrect. I think what he was trying to say is that, you know, all of the operations you send to mutate these data structures are commutative. And so what that means is anybody can apply them in any order. And then when they all come back together at the end and, you know, everybody's happy and consistent, then there's actually, you know, a representation of the data structure that makes sense that reflects all of the operations. Okay. Okay. Right. I, so, I, I, well, I was actually, I was actually responding to James. Um, I was wondering if he could just expand a tiny bit on on what he meant when he said that it's not a good idea to store that data in the relational database. Yes, Actually, I, wa- I, I wanted I, to I wanted to add an extra point to that. Do you mean the relational database or do you mean the operations database? Yeah, yeah, it's all good questions, and I was okay. trying to give an example without too much detail. But just to clarify, um, what I meant by I, I meant it was not a good idea to store those autocomplete conversions in our primary relational database because uh, in this particular case, uh, we do a substantial amount of volume and there's two autocomplete fields on every form. So uh, they're coming in very fast and basically they're doubled because there's two of them. Okay, so um, it's, it's the, the right load? Yeah, it's the right load that, that we would be pumping in so many entries and that would be detracting from our, uh, you know, our, our ability to do other database operations and the database right. is heavily used. Right, because in, it can't, you can't say, oh, prioritize these rights over those rights. Right. Right. And, and, uh, to be fair, you also, uh, pinned me on, you know, oh, but you're adding a bunch of services to get around it, which is true. Uh, but we already use Redis for several other things, so Redis mm-hmm. is already there and available. And one of the kind of fun parts of doing uh, Redis in this particular problem, uh, and, and I think we should get into this more with Reoc, is you know all of these NoSQL databases kind of have their sweet spot. And this is one of the cases where I think Redis is kind of neat because the default kind of, quote, persistency mechanism in Redis is none normally and then periodically just grab the whole thing and shove it in a file, right? So that if you had to, you could roll back to that point. With something like auto-completion, you know, conversion data, that's almost ideal, right? We don't need to be consistent to the very last entry. Who cares, you know? Uh, But... Uh, being able to restore to some point would be great, you know. So. I think it's interesting that I've known for a couple of years now that you should not do reporting from your operations database because you have to join so many tables together and it's just 
it kills performance. You really need to offload that to another service, um, ideally to like a vertical database or you know column store or something like that, um, or to like a data warehouse where you can actually do proper reporting. And it feels like there's another thing that you need to not be. It's a common theme in NoSQL. There's another thing you need to not be doing in your operations database, and that's logging. And that's this is like a, a special yeah. case of logging, right? Yeah, yeah, almost. What do you mean by logging? Um, just streaming a whole bunch of micro events that really aren't of huge importance to the customer, perhaps, or to the business, but are of great importance to like development or to people planning out the next thing that they want to give to the customer. And so, usually, it's, it's characterized by a very high write load, and it's stuff you just kind of want it to go. I, just, I you know, I want to, I want to shove. 20,000 of these events into the database every second, and I'd really like the shopping cart to not stop working while I'm doing it. <laughs> I think you're mostly referring to metrics, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, metrics is a really good example of that, right? I mean, it's like, if you've got a JavaScript dingbat that's gathering up, you know, mouse move heat maps, you really don't want to be locking tables to write that are right next to the shopping cart uh, in the database uh, under the same thing, you know, yeah. And and I feel like I'm reducing React to a toy logger, and that's, that's not my intent. <laughs> um, but that's what I'm doing, because it is just a toy logger, and I'm kidding. Anyway, my, my point is, is that if, yeah, if, you, if you've got a very high write load, and I, and I, 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 I want to call back to James. Thank you for basically answering the key question, which was you could actually have some data that is eventually consistent, but before it's eventually consistent, it's good enough, right? That autocomplete data, if one one shard reap or one, I can't remember what React calls them, but if one of them returns back, oh, yeah, this is 15 times, and another one says, no, this is 17 times, uh, that's okay, right? That's good enough. Abdi brought up a kind of good point I think I'd like to throw to the uh, React team here, there is this overhead, right? Anytime you, you know, when you say, oh, we're going to introduce autocomplete, so we're going to need Elasticsearch and Redis, and then you got to think, okay, so the, you know, the sysadmins, they're going to have to do some installs, and we may need to, you know, partition some new boxes or whatever. React seems to be kind of on a higher end of that, you know, like if, if by default, you know, the recommendation is something like five machines or something like that. Um, do you think that puts it at a slightly higher barrier to entry when people decide to go to it, or I'm curious? Yeah, I, I, I can't count how many times we have had to answer the why is it so slow on one machine question um, <laughs> on our mailing list. Um, <laughs> and we have to say, you know, Sorry, you're storing three copies of your data every time. And, you know, it, it, it's been a, a hard thing, I think, to be, you know, well, it, when you're trying to sell a product, right, it's, it's hard to be honest about the shortcomings. Uh, we've been, we've tried really hard to be honest about React and say, you know, you're not going to need it if you have a single machine running your web application and your database and your web server. Like, you're not going to re- need React. So, what we tend to get is uh, people who have already crossed in the multi- into the multiple machine territory, except for the people who are just, you know, hobbyists. They're just looking at React for, for fun. So, you know, big enterprises use React, companies with large volume applications. And there's a lot of systems similar to React. So, you know, uh, Voldemort, which came out of LinkedIn, and uh, Cassandra are, you know, in some ways pretty similar to React. So the, the use cases for those often overlap. 
I, I want to talk a little bit about the the scaling because I've I've used uh, Voldemort and Cassandra, and the scaling is kind of painful for those. I was just wondering, is React any easier to get the scaling up on? I, I hear this about most databases. We yeah, need it, we need I, it on a couple machines. It's hard, you know. Well, at, I, I've heard, you know, depending on the version, I've heard sometimes in Cassandra you have to double the cluster size when you grow it. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I don't know if that's uh, well, why that is. Uh, there's some technical reason I don't understand. But React actually, you can grow it. You tend to grow it by multiple machines at a time, but you can grow it by one machine at a time if you have to. The challenge there is every time you add a machine, React has to pick where each of those partitions in the ring we talked about before, where they go now. And so you see if you add a machine one at a time, you're going to tend to get more of that data shuffling around. And that data, you know, shuffling it around takes time too, right? It takes your network bandwidth, it takes disk I.O. So, you know, adding machines is never free, right? What you get in the end is, you know, that you have more capacity. But, uh, you know, we, we, our uh, awesome support engineers have spent a decent amount of time helping customers uh, grow their clusters. So would it be cheaper then to just uh, add more disk space to your existing servers? Or Yeah, and pe- people do that too, yeah. You know, usually it means taking it offline, you know, do the disk copy type of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, th- those don't necessarily solve the same problem. So, you know, if, if it's a matter of how much can I pump through one machine... If that if that's the problem they're trying to solve, or you know, or how much space do I have on this machine? Then yeah, you know, take it down, add more disks, bring it back up is the answer. But uh, sometimes, uh, you know, a, a, a one of our, our customers with the largest cluster um, has done both. So with their cluster, they have both upgraded the hardware on the machine and added more sh- machines as time goes on, um, and they need to serve more traffic and, and hold more data. I wanted to talk a little bit about this a little bit uh, from the coding side. I'm curious, since this is pretty clearly something that you add in when you realize you need the capacity. It's not, it's not something that you're going to know, you know, from the necessarily going to know from the get go that you need this, this level of capacity. And so you're going to hit a point where you're writing information like those, those autocomplete accepts and you suddenly realize that your main store doesn't cut it anymore. Are there some sort of broad guidelines for designing your code that make it easier to bring this kind of second store in uh, that you found? So in my experience with uh, Rails apps and Rails-like apps, the sort of MVC structure that everybody tends to gravitate to feels like it works really well for this. And because it just sort of provides a nice integration point for something, and especially if you're using lots of just sort of the plain Ruby objects to manage how your cl- how your other models are interacting with each other. So, so let's talk about like I'm logging into a website. Am I loading a user model and checking the password, or am I creating a login instance? Now, if you want to start lo- like keeping these logins in a more structured format where I want to be able to see a list of my existing sessions, kill these sessions, and I want these sessions to live in React, that existing model class feels like a really good spot, the login model class, to sort of integrate using React to track all these different sessions to destroy them if I think that somebody's got my password and is stuck in, or if I left myself logged in a public computer or something like that. Hmm. What if that's already 
if you're already putting some user session. I'm thinking about the case where in a typical Rails app, you have a lot of models that are very tightly tied to Active Record, which means they're tied to your, your primary relational store. Yeah, I think the, the biggest conceptual shift that uh, the people encounter is that you're not focusing on getting everything normalized um, and you know as pure and deduplicated as possible. You, you tend to optimize for, here's the thing that I have to display on this screen, so how can I reduce this to the fewest number of requests to React um, or to you know whatever key value store you're using, it, so that just to display this page. So um, often when we find um, uh, there will be data, you know, duplication. Things will be copied. You will tend to put, you know, larger blobs of information uh, rather than having smaller records with lots of uh, foreign key references. So there, there's a big conceptual shift there. But uh, usually, like like Bryce mentioned, people get into it via like session store because you know session store is just a place to put your stuff, right? You know, there's only it's a you know single uh, name for the session being the key, and then a value, which is whatever you want it to be. Um, mm -hmm. So, like, session stores is a very common use case. If your users are uniquely identified, um, mm -hmm. you know, you, like UUID or, or uh, you know, some kind of hash or whatever, or if you only allow them one email address, right, that's a way to, or a good use case for React. So those things, those things where you can immediately say, I know what this key, the key for this thing is, or I can take these other pieces of information and construct the key. Those are the best use cases for React. Now we have the other things like, you know, secondary indexes and, and, uh, in 2.0, we're getting full solar based search, um, which is pretty awesome. And, and these data structures that, that we talked about previously, but for the most part, like it's bread and butter is, can you give me the exact key that you want? And I'll get that back to you in a really reasonable latency. It's kind of Maybe interesting price. to hear you say session store. I don't know why. I, I guess I often think of the user session as not super vital, not like, you know, ri it ridiculously mission critical. Like, I mean, losing it means I'll lose somebody's login, but it, it doesn't mean I'm probably going to lose a lot of data, you know, or whatever. Whereas I, I tend to think of React it, that I should use it in situations where I, I'm much more paranoid about my data, you know, safety level. Am I thinking about that wrong? No, I, I think that I think that's fair. Um, on the other hand, you know, what, what we typically think about with rail sessions, and especially because, you know, so many people have had pain in the past, like, I don't know if any of you have used active record sessions or, you know, before. I, I made that mistake in the past. <laughs> but so much of what we put in sessions in most apps is, is really small, right? If it, can, if it can fit in a cookie or, you know, if you have to put it in an external store, you put it like in something that's ephemeral, like Memcached or Redis or something. But there are plenty of applications that have larger session objects. Take, for example, something where you are filling out a form, like a sequence of steps. Wizard. Like a wizard, right? <laughs> you know, you've, you've got some, like, ugly government form to fill in, and you, you need to take multiple steps to fill in all the pieces. That's, like, something that, you know, if you aborted it, you know, if you logged out, maybe you don't want to keep that around. But while you're still there, you know, if there's a lot of data there that, you know, needs to, to persist through 
the, your time through the wizard, then yeah, maybe maybe you want it for that. I think the biggest example of somebody using React as a session store is Wikia. They provide uh, white label media wiki instances, basically. They're sort of a shoot off of Wikipedia back in the day, but they, you know, for their power users especially, they replicate those people's sessions across multiple data centers uh, using React. And partly because their sessions are so big, you know, they said, we can't keep this in memcached or we can't keep it in a cookie. And we want, you know, if one of these data centers fails, um, we want somebody to be able to still have, still be logged in in the other data center and we can redirect their traffic there. Yeah, that's cool. That's a good example. And sort of related to that, there's a lot of sites, uh, and I'm particularly thinking of GitHub here, where one of the big features and conveniences of the site is that you generally don't get logged out for no good reason. Uh, so I'm just looking at my GitHub security history, and I have a session that I signed in back in October, and it's January 9th right now. <laughs> and, and and these sessions, they materialize these and keep the data persistent, or enough of the data persistent on their server that I can go in and log myself out. Say my phone got stolen and I never set a fingerprint or a passcode on it. I wouldn't want that to be continued to log into GitHub and be able to access my proprietary code. So having that session distributed so it would be accessible, but at the same time be able to remotely destroy it seems valuable. Oh no, they can have my GitHub login if they're going to do my work for me. <laughs> yeah, but what if it was me? All right, good point. You see the problem here. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do your work for you as long as I get paid. <laughs> That's cool. React's got uh, multiple interfaces, right? An HTTP interface and then uh, is it binary? The other one? Yeah, it's a binary interface based on the uh, protocol buffers standard. Gotcha. And didn't the Ruby client like recently drop the HTTP interface? Is that kind of being phased out in, in favor of the protocol buffers? or? So for React 2 and the React Ruby client 2, we are dropping the HTTP interface. So the history there is that originally React, I believe, was only HTTP. Sean, is that correct? Yes, that is correct. So, over time, more features got added to the new protocol buffers interface, but it wasn't really until React 1.4 where protocol buffers and HTTP were at pretty complete parity. So, before that, you'd if you were using protocol buffers for some features, you may still need HTTP for all the features. With React 1.4, we finally got all the features to parity on both interfaces. And with with that, we sort of noticed that one of the big code maintenance issues was that when a feature would change or a feature would get added, it would be more than twice the work to make sure it got added correctly to both uh, backends in this case. It's actually, more than that, considering we have two different uh, HTTP backends in uh, 1.4. So with 2.0, with a lot of the new features, the new uh, solar-based search, which we call Yokozuna, and the CRDT stuff, there's a lot of new work there, and making the new work only work with protocol buffers seemed to be a good way to make sure that it would get done quickly and correctly, and we'd have time, or we, turns out it's mostly just me, would have time to work on other features that are getting added. So we made the decision that we'd remove HTTP support from React to uh, the gem for them. How much of a of an efficiency boost are you seeing from uh, using binary protocols? 
I don't have any uh, handy benchmarks about that personally. Um, dun, dun, dun. Yeah. So it, all you really know is you make hard. the code harder <laughs> to use. <laughs> well, no, I, actually, so what it would do is makes it harder to like poke at the database without a client. Yeah. The you know we're we're still thinking about oh you know maybe we should have something like you know a Mongo shell or you know your PostgreSQL shell. Redis CLI. Yeah, Redis CLI. You know those are good examples of yeah. of, of how. Other databases have made it really friendly for users. And, and sadly, all of the examples on our documentation that aren't, you know, language specific are, hey, use curl from the command line. And the, the, the flip side of that is, oh, now you have to need, know all these like switches for curl and, you know, and, you know, how do you set the, the correct header and, and all those crazy things. I think some, in in a lot of cases, the protocol buffers, or the binary protocol, is more efficient just because it has smaller payloads, and you're not doing text parsing. You've got uh, you can make the, the the decoding and encoding routines more efficient. It seems to be a recurring theme for us lately. We did that HTTP two episode recently, which was basically about this. Yeah, but we were mean to them. <laughs> so uh, I, I want to ask a little bit about the MapReduce and the full text search that's uh, it says right on your front page that you have. How, how do you do that if it's a key value store? I mean, are you just, you know, parsing the contents and saying, yeah, this text's in there somewhere, or is there more to it than that? So do we want to start with MapReduce or search? Which one do you want to take first? Because they're actually very different. How about MapReduce? Okay, so the same... And Bryce, feel free to jump in here at any point. But the same concepts that we use to distribute the data around the cluster can be used to distribute the work of a MapReduce uh, job. Uh, so you basically feed it. Here's some keys. There are multiple ways to feed it with keys, um, and then you you know apply different phases to it. Map phases will load data from disk and you know transform it. Reduce phases collect the results of previous phases um, into a single value or a list of values. And so what we can do is, uh, you know, ship the code to the data. Uh, so if you have, you know, a large cluster, you, you know, in addition to getting that extra storage capacity, you get extra processing power. Now, the, the challenge of this is often people, what people want to do is scan across all their data and feed it into this job, which, you know, uh, David, you were talking a bit of go about, you know, operational versus analytics databases, and this is sort of the same problem uh, if you were using React as an operations database and then you throw this big batch query at it, it's, it's not going to feel very good for your application. <laughs> <laughs> Goes about uh, as well as the seven-table join in SQL, right? Right, right. <laughs> Actually, there's a customer of ours who used to have an 18-table join inside of a store procedure. And they switch it out for React and pre-computing things, but uh, <laughs> I was going to say, I think I just threw up in my mouth. <laughs> yeah, you probably should, right? <laughs> but you know, if you're doing a small number of keys, um, maybe that may fit inside the the context of a, a web request or you know, or some kind of you know AJAX thing. So we typically say, you know, only do this if you have to. You're better off just fetching keys, but you can, you know, do that sort of open-ended processing. So, so in the case of, say, analytics, for example, you could map across all of the entries for a given day or week or month or whatever and then have it reduce 
to, you know, just the counts or whatever information you need. And it just distributes that across the different nodes so that they all, they all do their work and then does it aggregate it somewhere? Or how, how, how exactly does that? Yeah, the results stream back to the client request coordinator. So, so that, uh, you know, it'll just send, as it gets results, it'll just send them straight back to the client. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you have a reduce phase in there, you know, that's, that's a, a fan in point, right? So you will have delay and it'll have to aggregate all the results before it sends it to, to the client. Okay. The, the other question I have related to that is you were talking about it almost like you could only map across keys. Can you map across the values as well? Oh, I'm sorry. I, did, I didn't mean to mislead there. A map function is run against a single value, but what the input to a phase that has a map function, it has to be a key. So that could be, you know, you, you do uh, list all the keys in this bucket, um, and that's the input, and then, you know, across each key that it finds, it'll run that map function. Or it could be, you know, perform this secondary index query and give pass the keys to the map phase. Or it could be, you know, do this full-text search and then feed those the resulting document IDs into the map phase, which those document IDs should correspond to a key. Um, so there's, you know, there's multiple ways to give uh, that date, that information to a map phase, but uh, the map phase just takes a key, loads the data that the corresponds to that key off of disk, and then processes it. And so you can have secondary indexes. So you have the key that's one thing, and then you can have another index on your objects that is another thing that you can query against. Yeah, so, you know... I would say that's kind of a common tactic for key-value databases in in general, basically, is to, you know, pre-calculate how you're going to need this data, right? Yep. Yeah, it just... just, when, When you mentioned it, it just seemed like that was, oh, okay, so I can get my data set another way if I'm if I'm proactive about collecting it that way. And SQL's doing that too, right? It's just doing it behind the scenes for us. We specify to index on this particular key, and it builds a lookup map to, you know, so that it can get at those records faster going through that key, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. How about the the new uh, full-tank search in 2.0? That looks pretty neat. It is quite neat, actually. So it's completely built around the uh, Solar and uh, Lucene uh, projects in Java. So now, React, if you want to use Yokozuna, the new 2.0 search, uh, you have to bring along a JVM for the ride. But it's uh, rather nice. You just throw normal Solar queries at it, and it runs the query against each node, and then joins the results together in a sensible way to make sure you don't have the same result multiple times because it matched on multiple nodes uh, it manages, you know, indexing correctly. So you basically tell the client or you tell the React server through the client that you want this bucket to be indexed into this index. And it just sort of works. It does have, it can read all sorts of different documents, uh, JSON, XML, HTML. I believe it can do Microsoft Word. And within the last couple of versions, so I haven't actually tested it. It also works on the uh, CRDTs, or the data types. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting. So when you say read JSON, I can specify like some arbitrary field in there that's, that's the thing I need to search on? That's correct. That's cool. 
and you're you're basically using solar and the Lucene engine, and it's uh, the the data store that it's using is React. Is that what I gathered, or did I misunderstand? It's using the engine at a low level, but then React has to do some extra work to make sure that since the query is being run in multiple instances of the engine all around the cluster, that you get coherent results okay. back. That makes sense. Right, and you know, there's like Solar Cloud out there. Um, you know, some people may have been, uh, you know, think this is that, but you know, React does the distribution for this, like Bryce said, and and then uh, you know, Solar does the querying. It's cool. And a few months ago, I threw together a gem that lets you string the uh, queries together, just like uh, Rails three Active Record queries. Ah, uh, like the the dot syntax where you just keep tacking things on. Yeah, uh, bucket.query.where, uh, name is this value, order by, create it up. Interesting. So it's like no SQL SQL. No SQL. <laughs> right, and that's sort of what I've been going for. And I feel like that's since I've been at Basho, I've sort of been gravitating around this idea of bringing active record-like stuff or the cutting-edge active record stuff to work on React. And there's been, you know, flirting at, but not actually making a query planner that can emit MapReduce jobs trying to and failing to retrofit some stuff off on top of Ripple, the old uh, active model layer that we used to maintain and uh, haven't for about two years now. But it's uh, been fascinating by, and especially with the React secondary indexes, by learning how to write those and design those for specific queries. I feel like I've gotten a lot better at writing Postgres indexes as well. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, because you have to do them all manually in React. (laughs) Right, Right. I know, right? Yeah, but just sort of the even the things like understanding the cardinality of the different yeah. uh, components of the index. So React probably isn't used as the primary data store replacement. I would assume. You know, I, I'm assuming it's it's generally brought in in some project to handle the special case where the you know super tolerant key value store benefits. And yet, you know, the main store typically stays like, you know, SQL or whatever. Do you think I have that right? Or or do you see lots of people using it as their primary data store? I've personally worked on a few projects where React was the primary and only data store. But I don't know if it's necessarily the best fit for that role. In particular, the case that I always worry about is whenever you're creating a new user with an email address and a password, what happens if two people that think they own the same email address. Like there's, you know, there's like a mirror universe Bryce K out there with Bryce K at gmail.com, or they think they have it, and they sign up for lots of sites with my email. So what happens if we both sign up for the same site with the same email and different passwords? Who wins in that case? And the tools that React gives you, or React, you know, 1.4 today gives you, don't give you a good answer for that. That's a good point. So really, the ideal application, it seems that I'm, what I'm hearing you say is something where I can show it, and that's always going to be this unique identifier in some way. Well, you don't have to show it. Rhea can show it for you. Right, yeah. But, but, yeah. but yeah. Like, con- content-addressable data is is great fit for React. You know, there's been a, a lot of buzz around Datomic, and uh, they have last year unveiled that they support React as a storage engine, 
uh, for Datomic. And the way they do that is all of their data is immutable. Um, so once once it's written, which you know includes not just the data but all the indexes, and they are just like, hey, that you know this block of data and indexes, its content like its content is its identifier, right? So we'll just you know hash the content and store that and you know, if it's not there, we'll just keep fetching it until it's there, if we expect it to be there. So there's there's lots of ways that, especially if you don't mind, you know, duplicating data or, or, or rewriting it, if you if you are uh, less concerned with mutating uh, existing data and you just want to write new stuff, you know, immutability is a great uh, use case for, for storing things in React. We've been addressing this mostly from the point of view of client programmers of React. I'm kind of curious about your experience programming React. Uh, what's the, first of all, what's the language breakdown that you're using? So React itself is mostly Erlang. Uh, there's a few parts. The, uh, the level DB on disk format is implemented in C++. Mm -hmm. And there may be some JavaScript bits in the MapReduce stuff. Okay. What's your experience been uh, coding that in Erlang? Has that been good? Uh, my experience, yeah. I, I think a lot of people complain about Erlang with the syntax. That seems to be the first thing that comes up. Uh, well, but obviously. Actually, yeah, you know, it's so ugly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, the I think harder than the syntax is the mental model. Um, but yeah. once, once you've embraced the idea of... Uh, of actors and, and message passing and, and um, you know immutable data, always copying things. Uh, then then the the syntax kind of falls away. Um, on the, the other hand, is, you know, is just kind of like a warning, right? Like you yeah, know, it's like this yeah, looks like awful. Used to be in a different mode, right? Yeah. What the hell is this crap? Okay, good. Now yeah. you're in the right <laughs> mind frame. <laughs> yeah, I let's was talk about cryptocurrency. Jose's elixir, you know, is is sort of like softening that blow for people, right. and so that's that's a good thing, which may or may not be a good thing. Right. Well, it, 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 it might be a disservice. It might be a disservice. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it does it gives you a lot of familiar. If you're a Ruby programmer, it gives you a lot of Ruby constructs with utterly alien semantics. Appear yeah. apparently Ruby constructs. Uh, I, I see what you're saying, so... It looks like a def, but it behaves differently, so you don't get what you're expecting, basically. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, well, I hate to be a party pooper, but uh, I had some guy invite me to an Erlang podcast, and so uh, I need to start <laughs> wrapping up so I'm ready in time. Aha! Those Erlang people. Just spit would... up another 15 copies of yourself, Chuck. There we go. <laughs> Working on that. I will say this, though, right? Doesn't React seem to be, like, squarely in the middle of the Erlang problem set, right? I mean, it's almost an ideal yeah. fit, right? The the super ridiculous to uh, tolerance and concurrency and stuff. Right. So so all of those things that we want from a, you know, total system level also go down to the individual components in terms of reliability and being able to recover from failure, which is, yeah, you're right. It's such a great fit. All right. Well, let's do the picks. Avdi, do you want to start us with picks? All right. So one thing that I've been using a ton and really, really appreciating for the last few weeks is IRC Cloud. And IRC Cloud is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. It is a cloud-based web front end to IRC. And it's pretty much single-handedly gotten me back onto IRC after many years because it addresses just about all of the the problems that I've had with IRC that have kind of 
kept me from getting back into it. It keeps me logged in all the time. Uh, whether or not I've got a client open, it's got like web clients and it's got a web client and then it's got, um, mobile clients and whether or not I'm logged in, it has me logged in. So I'm not like losing chat logs and losing messages that people have sent me because I wasn't logged in. And if I, if I join a room on my computer, then I'm also joined on my phone. And if I join on my phone, it's also joined in the computer. And so it's just a seamless experience where it's not like different clients, different places, which are subscribed to different rooms. And uh, a lot of other cool stuff. Like lately, they added the ability to where it, if somebody pastes in a gist, uh, it actually just inlines the gist right in the chat stream. So you can just look at it instead of f- clicking through the link. And um, a lot of other neat stuff. Pings me awesome. awesome. Yeah, it pings me on my phone when somebody mentions me or tries to get to direct message me. And uh, yeah, I could go on and on. It's it's pretty great. Um, I'm, I'm back on IRC because of it. So it's, it, they've got uh, some slight limitations if you use the free version and then there's a, like a $5 a month version, which doesn't have any limitations. So yeah, IRC cloud is pretty sweet. Uh, something else I've been using a lot lately, moving off of technical stuff is Google one today, which is a phone app. I'm not sure if there's a web app as well, but there's, there are apps for Android and, and iOS and basically what it does is it gives you a different vetted charity every day, uh, pops up on your phone and gives you a little bit of information about it and gives you the, op- the opportunity to donate a dollar to that charity. And actually, it, it, if you scroll through, I think it actually presents several charities a day. So if, if you're not too into the one that it pops up, you can look around for another interesting one. It also has some fun options for setting up small matches so that you can post a match and then when other people contribute, you'll, you'll match them dollar for dollar up to a, a small, a low limit. And it's, it's very cool because, you know, if, you, if you're like me, you are always a little bit concerned that, you know, maybe some of the charities aren't as good. You know, maybe they're, they're not putting all the money towards or enough of the money towards the actual work. And this kind of gives me a way to spread money around uh, to a lot of different interesting charities. That's awesome. Cool. Uh, James, what are your picks? I feel like mine are very really boring now that I've heard of these. <laughs> I want to go play with his stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Was that a, I don't have any picks? No, no, I have them. <laughs> <laughs> I collected a bunch while I was on vacation, so I'll spread them out over the next couple of weeks. But uh, I saw this just before we recorded. There's a new uh, blog post on the Code Climate blog um, about when is it time to refactor. It's really great. Just some basic... Yeah tips about, um, you know, is it time yet or can it wait? Uh, I think one of those decisions we eternally wrestle with or eternally get wrong, one of the two. So that was interesting. Another interesting thing I saw on vacation is the Sandy meter. Um, So when Sandy Metz was on the show, she gave us a bunch of rules, you know, preferably no classes over 100 lines, no methods over four, et cetera, et cetera. And the Sandy meter is a uh, static analysis tool <laughs> that will run through your code and tell you how much you're violating the Sandy meter. And the cool part is it has like a HTML output mode complete with graphs and pretty pictures. So That's awesome. I, I wrote a poor man's version of that a month ago to, to, oh, cool. to keep me safe in my code. I'm going to use that. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's cool. Uh, you should check it out. 
And then uh, while I was on break, I did many things. And like I said, I'll spread, spread out the uh, content. But one of the things I did was play Gone Home off of Steam uh, is, is a game. And uh, it's actually, I, I'm actually even a little hesitant to describe it as a game. It, it's very, you know, uh, I wouldn't say it's got conflict in it or anything like that. It's kind of just... You find yourself in this situation where it's very reasonable why you don't know what's going on, and um, you kind of explore it until you've figured out what's going on. Uh, and so it's very cool. It's it's more of an interactive story, I would say, than, um, than uh, specifically a game. But it's really good. You can play through it in, you know, a couple afternoons, uh, you know, in your free time. It's, it's not lengthy, and... Uh, it's really well done and, and has kind of these side things you can figure out, uh, you know, to kind of pay you off for paying attention. So, cool game. I enjoyed it. Those are my picks. Cool. Awesome. David, what are your picks? Uh, okay, so my first pick is uh, MailChimp. And uh, there's a bunch of mail services out there. If you want to build a mailing list and put together email campaigns and send, you know, drip stuff out there, there are some a bunch of good services out there. There's AWeber, there's or AWeber, however you pronounce it, there's ConvertKit. And this is by no means a comprehensive review of all of them, but I went to I looked at them and uh I had a coupon for like three months free for one of the services and I signed in and their, their web page crashed, and so I I filled it out again, and then they said, no, that email's already been taken, and there was no way to fix it. So I went to MailChimp, and it just worked. And I had a list up and running in 15 minutes, and I knew nothing. I've never actually run a mailing list before. And I had a working mailing list in 15 minutes. That that includes time sitting, reading through the concepts of building your subscriber base into groups and making different mailing lists and having campaigns and all all that stuff. 15 minutes, and there was an email in my inbox and in my wife's inbox, uh, you know, spamming us with some mythological product that I had uh, thought up for you know the test list. So uh, Mailchimp. I, I really, really like them. Uh, very, very easy to use. And the web interface for designing uh, the emails is actually quite pleasant to use. My second pick is The Gentle Art of Verbal Self-Defense. Uh, Katrina picked this a few months ago. I'm specifically picking the revised and updated version for 2009, which Amazon... Uh, hang on. UPS is literally just pulled up outside my door. They might actually be delivering my copy right now. The 2009 version is more updated. Uh, the original version was like like 1985 or something like that. So there's a lot more like internet stuff, like 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 email and and dealing stuff like that in in the new version. Uh, Suzette Hayden Elgin is the woman who wrote it, and it turns out that I have been chatting with her online through an anonymous handle. Uh, she's just somebody on LiveJournal that I, I knew, and knew this, she was this very kind lady that d knew a lot about linguistics, and it turned out that uh, when I went looking for her books, somebody said, you should go talk to so-and-so, and I'm like, wait a minute, I've been talking to her. You're telling me that she's my hero? She's been my hero this entire time? So that was kind of a fun uh, moment for me. Uh, my last pick is a game, or a pair of games. Uh, I suggest you buy them both. 
on Steam, you can get Metro 2033 and Metro Last Light. These are basically, if you think of the Fallout games as post-apocalyptic fantasy, Metro is post-apocalyptic hardcore sci-fi. The mutants are freaky monsters. There's thousands of types of species of, of mutations that have come because of the apocalypse. There's a compelling storyline. It's set in the subway uh, underneath Moscow, uh, in, in the metro, um, 20 years after the, uh, the apocalypse uh, has happened. And the first game is Metro 2333, and it actually forces you... If you want the good ending, you have to go to extreme lengths. If you play it like a regular first-person shooter and you shoot the bad guys and you you save the good guys, you're going to get the bad ending because there's only 10,000 people left alive in the world. So killing bad people is not really all that ethical. And so if you want the, the huge ethical good ending, you actually have to go out of your way to not kill people who are your enemies just because they have a different political ideology. Uh, it's okay to kill evil people, but it's not okay to kill people who are merely strongly opinionated and different than you. And uh, it's very, very exciting. Metro Last Light, you can buy these both in a single bundle. Sorry this review is taking too long, but these games are just fantastic. I can't say enough good things about them. Metro Last Light is the sequel, and it has the same kind of ethical conundrum you finish Metro 2033 by committing genocide on the bad guys and Metro Tw Last Light is the sequel and you basically realize that you really shouldn't have genocided the bad guys, that that was actually a very, very bad moral thing to do and you spend the entire game trying to save humanity from itself and yeah, it's it's been a long time since I've had a video game ask the question, is humanity even worth saving? And you don't really have a quick answer. And the game finally ends, in my opinion, it ends with uh, yes, but not on merit. They're worth saving just because. and uh, But not because they're good people, or not because we're good people. So I just can't say enough good things about Metro 2033 and Metro Last Light. First-person shooters, there aren't any cheat codes, but there are hacks and cheats. If you like to play casually like I do, you can contact me if you want help, because uh, the games are quite hard. And, uh, and I don't like hard games. I like games that I can read like a novel. And uh, so I highly recommend those. So, And then one throw-on quick thing. Avdi recommended a bunch of charities. Um, I love CharityNavigator.org. It's a website that gives uh, transparency into charities. Basically, they'll, they'll go in and they'll basically say, this particular charity has not exposed their finances to the SEC or they have and the uh, we've calculated how much of a percentage of overhead they're taking, and there are people up there that huh, oops, yeah, we they got totally busted. That the the CEO of the charity is taking ninety eight percent of the money given to the charity as his personal salary, and two percent is being given to the actual relief fund, and uh, other charities you know get much higher ratings and that sort of thing. So charitynavigator.org is a great place to look up uh, how charities are doing. So them's my picks. Awesome. All right, I'm going to go real fast. The last week or so I spent at Disneyland and then at New Media Expo, and so those are my picks. Uh, Disneyland, which is way fun, over in California. It's the one in California, not the one in Florida or wherever else. And, uh, yeah, it was just great to spend time with my family. It was a little less great to spend time with my wife's family, but it was fun. 
And, uh, yeah. And then, um, new media expo is the big conference for blogging, podcasting, uh, video production, web TV, etc. And anyway, it was, it was a lot of fun. I met some terrific people, including some of my podcasting heroes. And so, uh, you know, just, just a terrific time. And so if there are any listeners, I know there's at least one listener I met at new media expo. Um, it was terrific to meet you. And anyway, that, that's pretty much all I've got for, uh, picks. Sean, what are your picks? Okay, so I've got a, a bunch, but I'll make them short. Lately, I've been looking for an alternative to this uh, one app we have that's uh, written, uh, the UI is written with Ember.js, um, and I came upon a project by David Nolan called Ohm, which works with Facebook's React.js uh, library, and it's all ClojureScript. Uh, so <laughs> uh, I've been looking at that, uh, learning ClojureScript, and trying to see if this will work for for us to replace uh, Ember. It might, it might not. We'll see. I really love to write good tests uh, when given the possibility. So uh, one of my favorite tools for a long time, uh, we've used at Basho, is called QuickCheck. It uh, was originally written in Haskell. Uh, the, there's a commercial version that we use for Erlang. There's also a couple open source versions for Erlang. Um, and then there's uh, there's actually, uh, I haven't vetted it yet, but there's one for, for Ruby called Rantly. And uh, so the, the basic idea is it's a different testing paradigm. You, you write properties sort of like um, invariance is probably a better word at times uh, over your code rather than writing, you know, little happy path unit tests or, you know, fail path unit tests. Um, and it'll actually find by generating input to your algorithm, it'll find edge cases and bugs for you. And uh, a number of people have actually used QuickCheck in whatever language to find bugs in the standard library in the runtime. Um, so it's it's actually like really awesome at finding uh, bugs you would never expect. And uh, so a blog that I love to read. Um, there's this awesome grad student from UC Berkeley who goes by the name of Peter Bayless at p Bayless on Twitter, and he has a lot of great stuff about uh, distributed systems and databases and and whatnot. So I love to read his his work. He's also, unlike a lot of academics, really open about the stuff he's working on and usually posts a blog post uh, before uh, he, he posts a, a paper to a conference, um, which is kind of not, not common in, in academia. So go check out Peter Bayless and his work. And finally, and this is not technical, but uh, recently a friend of mine bought me this game for, for iOS called Bastion. came out a few years ago, um, but yeah. really this yeah, it's awesome game. Um, but I think what's really kind of tickles the the music nerd in me is is the soundtrack. Yes, yes, it's so awesome. Um, it is a, a sort of a combination of electronica and you know the sort of like cowboy wild west uh, vibe, and um, it is just really incredible piece of work. So, does um, it make you think of Firefly? Absolutely, it's the first yes. thing I thought of. Yes, yes. <laughs> It, Sorry, it is really great. And that, those are my picks. All right, Bryce, what are your picks? So I don't want to upstage you because I went to Epcot at uh, Walt Disney World last week and had a good time. So the day after that, <laughs> uh, Sam Elliott, a coworker here at Basho, and I went to the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex. And I've been there many, many times, but the new Space Shuttle Atlantis exhibit there is simply fantastic. Uh, the entrance to it, the uh, presentation of the uh, spacecraft itself, just beautifully done, and I love the Space Center a lot. 
Besides that, this week I've been doing a lot of debugging of the Beefcake gem in JRuby, and I've been using the free Visual VM tool for inspecting memory and CPU usage in JVMs. And it's been very valuable, and I don't know if I could have found the problem as quickly as I did without it. Awesome. All right, well, thanks for coming, guys. It was a great discussion, and I, I hope uh, we can get some people to go out and try React and see what it's all about. Very cool. Thank you. All right, I just want to remind everybody about our book club book. Uh, we're reading Ruby Under a Microscope, so go check that out. And besides that, we'll wrap this up, and we'll catch you all next week.